You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we're getting into that time of year when it's really fucking dark in the morning and I don't want to get out of bed because I think it's it's probably earlier than it actually is. But then yeah. I get this dog nose that gets right in my face and it's like, I have to be. Yeah. World's best alarm clock right there. Yeah. Yeah. I could say having also done the alarm clock that is a tiny squirming human wailing from other rooms that the, the dog knows. You can say Corwin. You can say Corwin. I mean, you know, he's he's getting kind of big for that sort of thing at 16, but still. Um, and so yeah, I will say that the dog knows is superior because at the end there's the whole like, who's a good boy, who's a good boy thing. And, you know, again, that's slightly weird where he's like, mom, stop doing that. And I'm like, who's a good boy, who's a good boy? And he's like, I'm 16. Yeah. My friends are here. Who's a good boy? Um, and so, yeah, we just generally need to learn our boundaries a little better. Yep. <laughs> so we're we're back uh, here in the saddle, and we've got our guest, uh, who's Max Bennett, author of A Brief History of Intelligence, which is actually dropping the day that this episode is queued to drop, October 24th. So if you're listening to this on launch day, then you know this gives you a, a great preview of what there is for you to for you to hear about. Okay, so a little background here before we jump in. Max so is the co founder. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Okay. So the name of the book is A Brief History of Intelligence? Yeah. Yeah. So this is not about Congress. Mm-mm, no, no. I mean, uh, that would be even briefer, um, and especially okay. if it were like time bound in the present, because it would be like a page that's like none. Um, you know, okay. it just. It yeah, just I just wanted to clarify yeah. that because yeah. like this can't be anything to do with politics whatsoever. Because evidently not. No, um, we are um, we are living in interesting times, as the saying goes. <laughs> um, but you know, this is an, uh, this is definitely a book that's sort of like grounded to some extent in in interesting times as well. Because Max is the co-founder and CEO of Albi, which is an AI company uh, that's based out of New York City. And so the the book itself, not to kind of steal uh, Max's thunder here, is really kind of this exploration of how human intelligence evolves and how that connects to where we are right now in the sort of journey of AI. And so. Um, here we are. Hey, Max, how's it going? It is good. Super excited to be here. So, How, how's that for for a, 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 an intro? Is that is that cool? You like that? Should we should we run that, that good. GPT? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we could. We could have ChatGPT write some alternative yeah. intros. <laughs> yes. No, it's great. Please write an intro for Max Bennett. Yeah, and just see see how it would have come out. Um, so I, I mean, do I, wonder I think, how much content right now is created by ChatGPT. Uh, too much. Is, there's, there's. So, yeah. so I'm sorry. We yeah, live. No, we, go ahead. No, we live in a. We live in the science fiction and fantasy sphere of stuff. So, <laughs> which I love, the by the way. We know. Awesome. Most of the people we know are are also in that. So that we're talking like authors, editors, publishers, stuff like that. It's yeah. it's. There has been a. Um. There's been a line drawn. By yeah. most of the most of the publishers of, of content, mm-hmm. it, it, even if it's like semi-pro zines, pro zines, all this kind of stuff, they have, uh, they have changed their guidelines on submissions to say that if you use AI or chat GPT or anything like that, you're automatically excluded. We're not mm-hmm. touching it. So yeah. to your point, there's tons of content being created and it's interesting to see how people are reacting to it and they're saying, nope. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think to kind of contextualize, uh, no, please go ahead. 
I was going to say, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I, like why, why do you think there is such an aversion to AI generated content? Like suppose, suppose mm -hmm. the content is actually good. So right now it's sure. like a sci-fi story generated from ChatGPT is quite boring. Um, I have tried to get it to write a good one. Um, but suppose it actually wrote a really great story. Uh, mm -hmm. Would we, uh, as society, not want it to be published? But it's problematic. It's problematic mm -hmm. because because how did it write the story? Did it write the story mm -hmm. by reading other people's stories, which yep. is how it's kind of working right now? It's like you're, you're you're training it by by having it read or or consume somehow other other people's stories and books, right? So that right there is problematic. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's like a isn't there like a lawsuit? There is. Oh, yeah. OpenAI and Bloomberg yeah. are, are being yep. sued at sort of a class action level by a yep. fairly yeah. high octane group of authors who are also inviting other authors to to sort of get on board with it. Yeah. So so, so what's yep. interesting and, and the reason I say problematic is because uh, if I read a bunch of stuff and then I write a story that's influenced by that stuff, uh, as long as I'm not plagiarizing, hmm. people are okay. I wrote the story, mm -hmm. even though I was influenced. If AI does it, they can't trust that it isn't 100%. Yeah. And I think with that in mind, um, certainly the argument that's been raised, um, and I think I'm um, kind of paraphrasing Sam Altman here, uh, who's you know one of the people behind mm -hmm. OpenAI as a as a major player in this conversation. You know, I'm going to garble his his quote here a little bit so apologies in advance but he kind of talked about the creative process as being the core the core information that influences you plus um novel arrangements thereof plus sigma equals you know as sigma is sort of like this sort of universal shrug of we don't know how creativity happens exactly Although I'll bet you have some things to say about that based on on your book, which we'll get to momentarily. We, we um, all know that creati creativity happens on the toilet and in the shower. I mean, come on. I mean, yes, the, the, those two are uh, also while Chapter driving. Three, you know, that can help too. Yeah, that's that's right there. Um, the importance <laughs> of the the five breakthroughs are you know toilet is right there, and they're like <laughs> plumbing. Um, yeah, um, but. I think to some extent, to your point, Patrick, and maybe this is something that you can kind of unpack for us a little bit, Max, I think that the creative process as it occurs within AI feels to us like a black box. Mm -hmm. I think the general public looks at it as, because I have a human brain and, and I'm used to my brain working a certain way and have a certain broad understanding of my own brain, even if I can't imagine creating something like this novel, like this work of art, like this movie, like this insert thing here, um, that other humans can create. I can imagine the process that went into it. And maybe because I can imagine the process that went into it, I can imagine that it is therefore daunting and I don't want to do it. But the black box that is AI, it is, yes, it is trained and influenced by exterior pieces of information that it then uses to sort of recombine and develop in theoretically novel ways its own materials, which mm -hmm. to a certain extent is what we do as well as humans. But it's the black box nature of we, I think, don't have a good comprehension of what does the air quote thinking process of an AI look like as mm -hmm. compared to the thinking process of a human. And that's, I think, where your your work in your book is trying to come in, right? Yeah. So there's, there's two ways in which uh, human 
humans think, which actually is two ways in which mammals think, but I'll talk about humans for a second. Um, one, and this, this dichotomy between these two ways of thinking shows up across fields, shows up in neuroscience, shows up in psychology, shows up in AI research. Um, and if you guys read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, his whole thing of system one and system two. Okay. So um, suppose I asked you the question, a bat and a ball together cost a dollar and 10 cents. The bat costs a dollar. How much does the ball cost? If you're like most people, your initial instinct is to answer 10 cents. But if you actually paused and did the math in your head, you realize that's wrong. It's five cents. It's something called in psychology, the cognitive reflection test. And what that reveals is there's actually two processes happening in your brain. One is a process of automatic prediction. This is habits. So you just automatically hear that sentence and you think it's 10 cents. And another is when we pause, we render an idea in our head, either of equations or a picture of something, and we perform some operations in our head. The first version, this fast version of thinking, is analogous to how ChatGPT works. It is just an automatic process of, of prediction. This slower process whereby we actually simulate things in our heads is something we have not recapitulated well in AI. And a lot of the differences between human thinking and AI today derives from this missing piece, which is in the book, Breakthrough Number Three, which emerged in mammals called simulating. Um, so in psychology, that's called system two versus system one. In AI research, it's called model-based versus model-free. Um, and in neuroscience, they call it goal-directed decision-making versus habitual decision-making. But that's fundamentally what's missing. And when we talk about uh, imagination and creativity, um, you know, when we think about different worlds we're trying to create, we reason about it a lot before we actually put words to a page. And that's not what ChatGPT does. It doesn't do any pause and think before it writes. And so that shows up in a variety of like mistakes that ChatGPT makes, which I can talk about. But that's the fundamental thing that's different between AI systems and human brains today. Well, Max, uh, first off, welcome to episode number 600 of the functional. Congratulations. Wow. And, and in 600 episodes, no one has ever, ever accused me of thinking before speaking. Or doing <laughs> <laughs> so, Maybe your chat based yeah. on your definite, yeah, I'm an AI. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> All this time, highly sophisticated as well. Yeah. Who knew? I wonder where my you, are you going to go rogue and attack me and then start spilling milk and spaghetti everywhere as you as you break <laughs> down? Is that is that where we're headed here? Deep nerd cuts going on. Deep nerd cuts. Um, so I think I mean that's with respect to your point and to what you you just sort of brought up, Max, and the kind of like how the thinking works. There continues to be a sort of fascination with, but also I think a certain level of concern with like, okay, mm -hmm. what, what will it take to close that gap that you've just described uh, between the way that the human mind works and the kind of air quote mind of an AI works. And in that space of closing that gap lies a lot of speaking to our audience here, longstanding narratives and concerns about, and this is where Skynet comes from folks, or mm -hmm. the kind of SF, the kind of SF null thinking that leads us to, um, the kind of almost Luddite branch of SF, which has always been a kind of funky quality of our sphere here, that on the one hand, we love technology, we are fascinated by it, but we're also apprehensive of its meaning and of its impact on us and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So I guess for you, um, you know, what, 
when when you think about like closing that gap, first off, do you do you think that we're ever going to get there? And second, when we do, do you think that that's going to pose any sorts of problems? Do you have any sort of catastrophic uh, catastrophic sort of nightmare concerns, or, or not so much? Yeah. Will will, will yeah, we get Lieutenant Commander Data, or will we get lore? Mm. Mm. We've got I, lots of memes of them disagreeing about how the sentence works, though. So, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I do have anxiety about it. I think it's um, – but it poses big questions that I – this might go on different tangents. But it poses big questions. Like, for example, we've been automating people's jobs for hundreds of years. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't love that we do that. But most people accept the fact that, okay, we get cheaper cars and uh, it's more people get access to cars. And yes, now there's many fewer people working in auto factories. And so we keep doing this over and over again. And I do feel this fear of like, man, I love writing. Is there, am I going to be able to write in 20 years or everyone just going to read AI generated writing? And something about that feels um, like it's depriving humans of something core to what it means to be a human, to be able to create things and share it with other people. Um, but it, it begs a broader question for me at least, which is, uh, can I, can I justify saying, well, I don't want the things that I divide, uh, derive my identity from to be taken, uh, by technology, but other things that benefit me as a consumer, I'm okay with technology benefiting to make things cheaper and easier for me. Um, and I think it, it behooves us to draw an interesting line of if we argue that we don't want AI systems to do these things, um, then I think it begs a bigger question around maybe there are certain technologies that we just, maybe we need to consider producers when we, when we make these technologies. For example, Amazon, it gives us access to cheaper goods, but it also deprives people from opening small bookstores. And maybe that's not mm -hmm. good. Right. Maybe it's actually better for us to have slightly more expensive books. And we don't think that way in society. But I, and I think AI forces us to be, bring back those types of questions because it's going to get to the point where a business will be able to hire an AI for dramatically cheaper than a person. And we're for a lot of tasks and we're going to have to ask, do we want that world um, or not? And I don't I don't know the right answer to that, but I think there's not. I do feel anxiety about it. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, even even right now, you've got you've got uh, websites that used to have a person that when you went there and you needed help, you clicked a button and a little chat screen came up and you would talk to that mm -hmm. person. Those have been replaced by chatbots. Mm -hmm. right? Let me let me help you. What's what's your problem? Oh, have you looked at this article? Have you looked at that article? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when you call certain companies now, right? You used to call a company and someone would answer the phone. Yep. Now you call a company. And I mean, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to like call anyone out or specifically name a shitty company like Xfinity slash Comcast. But if you call uh, like Xfinity slash Comcast, you will get stuck in a loop with a stupid fucking thing that doesn't know what it's talking about. Like yep. um, I had to replace, I had to replace my router. So I unplugged the old router. I plugged the new one in and the instructions are plug it in and then call the number. I call the number. Oh, Hey, I noticed that your internet's offline. Turn it off, turn it back on, and I'll text you in 15 minutes. Well, no, I need you to set up the router because it's a new router. Mm -hmm. I see that you're having but problems you, with your internet. Your internet is off. Would you have a problem? Unplug your router and plug it back in. And it wouldn't let me talk to a human being. 
I went so around for imagine like that imagine that AI got everything right though. Would yeah. then would then you be okay with it's it? It's not going to. That's the problem. <laughs> you think it never like, you think it never will. No, because it it has a it has a specific mm. thing. It's like, "Oh, you have a problem. I recognize the problem. Here's your problem. Let me fix it for you." And it's like, "Well, that's not my yeah. problem. That's not well, the issue. Here's my actual issue." And it didn't have a tree for that. Well, and you're talking about going back like eight minutes on the conversation, you're, you're talking about that idea of closing the gap from effectively kind of contextualizing how do we answer a question and solve a problem and consider information that is sort of absent from the equation as part of how we generate an answer, which is sort of how human thinking operates, that we often um, include information which is not explicit within a question as part of our answer, well, yeah, and as I, opposed I think the to the I AI think the working is- with yeah, but I think the difference is that the human, if I go to a human and I ask a question and the human doesn't know the answer, they mm-hmm. won't keep telling me over and over again, here's here's the thing. Like they will. Right. Because pivot. the context, they, they, they recognize <laughs> yeah. the context of the question is different than anticipated. They'll pivot. Yeah. So, so actually, I made the joke about data and lore, but I, I feel like AI right now is is a parrot. Hmm. It's just parroting information. It's not data yet. It can't do critical thinking. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But like I, I feel like we're we're really far apart from those two things, like where we are today and and having someone like data. So I think there yeah, I think I guess I would break this down into two sub questions. Question one is, will we get to a place where AI can do these tests well, which I'll talk about in a second. And the second is when we get there, how do we want to structure society to deal with the fact that AI can answer these questions if we ever get there. So I, Oh, it'll be uh, shitty. It, whatever we do, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be shitty at first. It'll, it'll, it'll be so shitty. It, it won't even be funny. Cause that's, that's our default first, right? We, we do right. things shitty and then, and then it takes decades before we go, Oh fuck. I guess we need to change that. <laughs> so will we get there? I do think we will figure this out. Um, it's a matter of time. Um, I think what I don't have the answer to is whether or not, uh, we should get there or how do we structure society to make sure that it is beneficial to us? That's much harder question. Um, what's been surprising to everyone in the AI and neuroscience community about ChatGPT is if you interviewed people three years ago, they would say, look, these language models, which only predict the next word, they are exactly parrots, which is what you are uh, critiquing them yeah. to be. It's hundred percent right. They're just parrots. They will never be able to perform tasks like common sense reasoning. They will never be able to do things that require deep reasoning, like pass medical exams, do the bar exam, um, uh, explain their own quote unquote reasoning behind things. And what Sam Altman to his credit did is, well, what happens if you just give it an astronomical amount of information? What if it reads the entire internet? then does it become capable of doing some of these things? And what has surprised everyone is ChatGPT, even though it doesn't have any of what we're describing here, it doesn't have a model of the world, it doesn't actually pause to think about its answers, performs scarily good on these types of tasks. It passes the bar exam without being given the answers. So it's not parroting. So this is a key point. When it passes the bar exam, it's not because it saw the answers on the internet. We construct a new bar exam with totally novel questions, and it gets it better than an average lawyer. Um, same thing with medical exams. 
So what it suggests is it's thinking in a very different way than humans, which has challenges. It's brittle. So it'll get these things right and then spontaneously say something utterly nonsensical. This is the challenge with using this model, model-free system of thinking. But it's not as uh, dumb, I think, as you're making it out to be, which is uh, it does perform remarkably well on some of these things that we would expect it not to do well on, which has taken everyone by surprise. Yeah. But, and I, I, no, please go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I was just going to say what, what's interesting though, is the problem with doing this, and this is maybe my critique of the current AI arms race is if we only look at the performance on tests, right? So here's an example. Um, let's say, uh, I give three different types of tests to chat GBT. I like this thought experiment when I I'm debating with people about uh, measuring the performance on tests. Ex uh, scenario one, I show the exact bar exam to ChatGPT with the right answers. I train it on that, and then I give it those same questions. It gets 100%. No one's impressed. It just cheated. Scenario two, I only give it historical bar exams. So it hasn't read anything about the law outside of bar exams. And then let's say it gets a perfect score. That's slightly more impressive. But I know for a fact I wouldn't want ChatGPT to be a lawyer because I know for a fact that bar exams do not contain all the information necessary to be a good lawyer. There's a bunch of things you learn in law school. And now scenario three, suppose I never showed it a bar exam. I only let it read books about law legal briefs, and then it gets 100%. That's even more impressive. That means it garnered some understanding of the underlying concepts. The problem today is we only measure these large language models in, in the entire AI community based on performances on tests. And everyone keeps a secret what the underlying training data is. And that's a huge problem because that means we don't actually know how smart are these systems relative to the data they were trained on. This is the, your yeah. parrot problem. How much is it parroting yeah. and how much is it actually producing something novel? And, yeah. and so in the AI arms race, as we just scale things up and we just show performances on tests, we don't know how much true insight is being garnered from these systems because we don't know the data. Um, and if without adding this model-based thinking, they even though they perform really well, they do nonsensical things. So you can get ChatGPT to get basic math wrong, even though it passes the bar exam, right? And this is the, the like problem, which is it just says crazy things while also being smart at the same time, which you don't get from uh, human brains in the same way. The, I think the thing about the thing about I'm sorry, Tracy. The the thing about right. reading the internet, like the whole internet, if the, if that's an actual project, I've got a cousin who has printed the entire internet. Like every time <laughs> she owns a page, she hits print. So if like someone <laughs> needs, like she's got stacks and yeah. stacks and stacks of. Dude, papers. let's do it. Let's yeah. read. Yeah, that's yeah <laughs> such an efficiency measure. It's practically recycling at that point. Her her, her husband claims <laughs> that that she has kept inkjet printer companies in business. Oh, I believe it. Um, because she literally hits that print screen on every single damn page that she ever pulls up on it. She's like, oh, this is interesting. And then the printer is going. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, that what you're talking about there, Sam, does go back to that black box idea, right? Because the black box isn't just how does it think. It is because of the proprietary um, essentially corporate environment of that kind of arms race that it is, we are, we are generating a product and this product, there can be strategies to monetize it. There can be strategies to turn it into a resource that we can leverage for capital and build businesses off of, or, or allow people to, um, kind of, uh, allow people to 
subscribe to it in order to to enhance their own business work and so on. All of that in mind, there is an incentive for the people who are contributing to GPT-4, developing it into GPT-5, who are creating Bing, who are doing all these other sorts of things to keep the cards of their methodology close to their chest. Mm-hmm. And I think that that contributes to people's sense of anxiety and uncertainty about not just what is the end game of AI, where could it go, but sort of what is what are the objectives and risks of it within the present. And that that said, I think this could be a really good time to kind of pivot toward in your book how you kind of try to map out the breakthroughs in human cognition relative to you know, what's the horizon of, of AI that we're talking about here. So, um, no pressure or anything, but if you were to give like the two minute overview, (laughs) what what might that sound like? Yeah. Before I do that, there was one thing you said that I think is really profound and I just want to explore that for a second and then I will give you the two uh, minute spiel of the book. Um, so when we put up buildings, um, we have design reviews of the engineering Uh, You can't just build a skyscraper in New York. You have to go to, in every city it's different, but you have to go to government officials and present the architecture of the building. And they look at how it works and they decide whether or not it passes some thresholds of safety. And there's a lot of people in the AI community, I am one of them, that thinks we need something very similar to that. Meaning we need some sort of regulation of how the system actually works. The performance tests alone are insufficient. Um, And so that means... There should be rules of how a system is allowed to work um, that prevents these types of risks of it hallucinating or making mistakes. Um, uh, One common uh, rule that people are proposing is it shouldn't be allowed to edit its own source code. And that's to prevent like runaway growth of like the Skynet scenario. Um, And that's a mechanistic rule. It has nothing to do with its performance. That has, it's a rule of how it's allowed to work. And we need more rules like that. Or, Or if you're watching Loki, Miss Minutes. Because Miss Minutes right. just <laughs> actually told people that uh, uh, he who remains allowed her to edit her own source code. Mm. There you go. Spoilers. Spoilers. Yes. <laughs> okay. So about the book. Um, so and, before- and hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, yes. I do have a question. Um, let that please. man talk about his book. I will let <laughs> no, him no, talk no. about his book. This is fun. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned building skyscrapers and and safety concerns and stuff. Um, and you want to build a similar system, uh, there's, there's ways around that in, in building skyscrapers, right? Mm. I mean, yep. that, that's why there's corruption. There's why there's, mm. you know, all these things that are happening right now. Uh, certain people are being, uh, uh, sued in federal court and in New York and Georgia and different places for corruption and things that they've done that are yep. bad. Uh, there's ways around that. So, so what, what kind of, uh, when you talk about having those kinds of safety cards, like, uh, what's to stop a human from circumventing that and doing something. Yeah, that that's a really good and hard question. I think uh, one of the big problems is regulatory capture, which is probably yeah. happening right now. I mean, who are the people who are in government who are stating the AI rules? It's all the people who are probably going to commercially benefit from AI. Um, and, and not so only I that, don't think the, the, people, the, the, the people who couldn't figure out how to do net neutrality and couldn't figure out fucking... <laughs> right, uh, exactly. Uh, what Facebook is and how Facebook works. It's like, really? Oh my God. So yeah, I don't know. That's a great question and that's hard. All I know is the state of the world where we do not have mechanistic rules and design reviews is a worse world than when we do. It's not, it doesn't end up being 
perfect by having them, but it's a step in the right direction um, sure. that I think is, is something we should do. But you're absolutely right. It's by no means perfect. The only antidote, and this does segue into my book, I would say is nice. I do think the populace needs to become more educated on the topics of intelligence um, and AI and neuroscience itself, because that makes people better informed to ask the right questions um, and to challenge people who are making these rules uh, to make sure they actually are accounting for the safety risks. In the absence of that, it's going to be this small insular community of people who can just run circles around everyone else because no one understands what's happening and then set the rules uh, in a way that benefits them. So segue to book. <laughs> so the idea... Um, the idea of the book, which sort of was incepted in my head about five years ago, um, starts from a goal. And the goal is we want to understand how the human brain works um, for so many reasons. Uh, understanding how the human brain works holds the secrets to why we are the way we are, why we do irrational things sometimes. Um, the origins of consciousness, that like secretive, mysterious thing that we've been pondering over for millennia. Um, it holds answers to uh, it holds answers to uh, mental disorder. Why do we get depressed and anxiety? How might we treat those types of things? Um, it uh, holds the answers to brain disorders from Parkinson's, and also it holds the answers to what's missing in AI um, because human brains can still do things that AI systems can't, and those differences might really matter. So. Understanding the brain is clearly one of the most important final frontiers of scientific endeavor. But there's two big problems. Problem one is the brain is unbelievably complicated. So this two-pound gray blob in our skulls has 86 billion neurons, 100 trillion connections, within the width of a single letter on a penny. So imagine a penny and one letter uh, of writing. There are over a billion connections of a neuron. So it is just so complicated that we've been trying to reverse engineer how the thing works for a long time. And we largely don't know. I mean, we made a lot of progress, but it's just really hard. That's problem one. Problem two is evolution works in really complicated, messy ways. It doesn't design things in coherent ways because evolution is not some godlike entity designing it from scratch. It's just a patchwork of a solution that's dissembled upon that's layered on some other half-baked solution that just keeps layering on top of each other, which makes it really hard to understand how the brain works because there's all these redundant systems that do kind of the same thing, that some systems are vestigial and not really used anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of the book is to take a totally new approach. Instead of looking at the brain today and trying to understand how it works, what if we roll back time? And what if we say, okay, the brain wasn't always so complicated. If we roll back the clock far enough, uh, all the way to 600 million years ago, at the dawn of animal life, we can look at the very first brain, which is the ancestor of all brain-endowed animals today, from insects to fish to mammals to us. And what if we just try and understand how that brain works, um, the foundations of which we've all inherited? And then we just roll back the clock, or look, roll forward the clock all the way to us, and we track the changes in how the brain uh, evolved new structures that were added, new intellectual faculties that emerged. Um, and we just tracked it all the way to the human brain. We might finally be able to make sense of how the modern brain works. I analogize this to if an alien came to earth and wanted to understand how computers works, and we just handed them a MacBook Pro and said, this is all you get. It would be really hard for them to understand how it worked from scratch. A MacBook Pro is unbelievably complicated. But if we gave them a computer museum, and they could go back to our first computers and understand the very simple ones and then track the design changes forward in time. They would be able to understand how a MacBook Pro worked. Uh, 
And so I take that same approach. And the really, really cool thing um, is one might think that this story would have so many trillions of different iterations that it couldn't be summarized in one book. But what it turns out is the brain evolved in five fundamental steps um, and what I call the five breakthroughs. And each breakthrough came with new brain structures and uh, new sets of abilities, but it was all singular. It was really one new thing that evolved. Um, so the book is summarized in five breakthroughs. It tracks the five big steps in brain evolution, each of which gave us a whole suite of new abilities that we have inherited. Um, and you know, in relation to AI, what we learn is AI systems already have breakthroughs one, two, and five, but they're missing breakthroughs three and four. And so they've skipped two essential things uh, that define what it means to be a mammal, um, shared across rats and cats and dogs. Um, and they're missing something that uh, evolved in early primates um, and is shared across you know, humans, chimpanzees, orangutans, et cetera. Um, so that's the high level idea of the book. Awesome. This now, is the now sort of you're, you, you, you assume that, that, that uh, the deleted scene from Independence Day where it comes to find out that Area 51 had the aliens and that's the reason we have the MacBook that Jeff Goldblum <laughs> uses to hack the spaceship. Like, right, right. I mean, come on, come on. That's where the MacBook came. That's a good point. Like the whole, yeah. But there we go. That's the the the, the alien seed technology stuff, and they they yeah. also store. I'm not saying it was aliens, um, but. So. <laughs> <laughs> This is one, a type of question I love to ask people who are just like seriously into the research of their field and like kind of wonky. Because for me, it's always, I don't know, when, when I've had the opportunity to research something I was kind of into, I always have this sort of moment and I, I, I feel like it's kind of a treat. Um, what was something that you learned in the process of kind of dividing things up into these five breakthroughs, identifying them, understanding them more completely yourself, where you were like, holy shit, what? Like what was, what was sort of a moment where like you went in having a certain set of anticipations and knowledge and then something still blew your mind, like some factoid, mm. some discovery, some, mm. you know, um, area 51, <laughs> right. I, we know Patrick's already. <laughs> right. I think, um, man, there's so many, uh, maybe I'll cherry pick a few if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh. One that, one that blows my mind is. You know, there, we've been debating for a long time whether or not how different humans are from other animals. Um, and a lot of people still today think that humans hold some great superiority over other animals. And uh, it's turned out in just the last two decades, uh, we can go into the brain of a rat as it's rocking around a maze and we can literally watch it imagine its own future. We can literally see it play out going down different paths and decide if it wants to have salt or it wants to have a uh, sugary treat. And we know whether it's going to choose based on the brain activation. Um, and so it is now, there are still people that hold out that claim that like mammals can't imagine the future, but the evidence, if you just read the, no, the evidence in totality is just irrefutable. In, in my view, they're clearly, they're clearly capable of imagining the future. And that's such an amazing uh, thing to realize, which is imagination is not a uniquely human thing. Your dog is imagining mm -hmm. things all the time. Uh, rats are going Mostly around squirrels. imagining things. Mostly squirrels, mm -hmm. right? Mostly it squirrels. also begs, right? It also begs a lot of questions around, like you know, the ethics of how we treat these other animals. Like, are they, you know, we like to think that oh, we're conscious and they're subconscious in some way, but the you know, brain research would suggest otherwise. So that's one thing, which is uh, the mammalian ability to imagine uh, the future and the past. 
Um, the other one uh, is in primates, which is crazy. There's a story uh, that I that I like a lot. Uh, this guy in the 70s was doing research on chimpanzees. And uh, he wanted to see the chimpanzee ability to map space, which had already been discovered in, in mice. So he did a very simple experiment. He was just putting treats under a rock or behind a bush, showing it to one chimpanzee and seeing if it would regularly go back to the same place and remember. It obviously remembered. That was easy. But then when he was doing this experiment, he started seeing something that was very weird. He saw that uh, the main chimpanzee named Bell would share the location of food with other chimpanzees in the troop. Like uh, the, the top chimpanzee's name was Rock. He would sh she would share the location with Rock. But then Rock was kind of a jerk. And Rock would take the treat from her and eat it all himself. Okay, not that weird. But then Bell started doing something. When Bell would see the location of the food, she would not go to it when Rock was looking. When Rock looked away, she would run over and try and grab the treat quickly. Okay, so she waits to try and trick Rock. But then Rock did something in exchange. He would pretend he was not paying attention. He would look off into the distance, and the second she ran to the treat, he would turn around and run towards it. So then That's she did something mind. else. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. So then what, uh, what Bell started doing is she would lead Rock in one direction to try and trick him, and then when he was there, run back. So what did Rock start doing? He ran in the opposite direction Bell was showing him. So the point is this ability to think about other people's thinking um, clearly exists. I mean, there's still debate around it, but there's a lot of evidence that it exists, at least in apes. And that's another like mind blowing realization about, uh, I think about, you know, other animals, um, in the animal kingdom and the underlying neurological ways in which this work, which I get into in the book, uh, I won't bore you with here, um, is also really fascinating, um, because we don't really understand how to recapitulate that in AI systems, which also has big safety concerns, um, to quickly do a, a Side note on this, one of the leading problems in AI um, is something called the paperclip problem, which is based on Nick Bostrom's following allegory, which is imagine we have an AI system that is uh, running a factory for paperclips. And we just asked this AI system, hey, can you just man can you just maximize paperclip manufacture so we all have paperclips? To which the AI system goes on to convert all of Earth into paperclips. And uh, that's as silly as that sounds. That's a problem of theory of mind, which is it did, we gave it a request, which is maximize paperclip manufacture, to which it happily fulfilled. But clearly, that's not what we meant. And we do this all the time in language. We infer what we mean by the words we say so that the words themselves don't have to be a comprehensive instruction. And doing that requires us to be able to understand each other's perspective and each other's preferences. This is a big problem in AI systems where we know they're not doing that. So how are we going to reliably give them requests and trust that they understand what we truly mean? And this is something that exists in an ape and primate brains that we're missing in AI systems. And you just described a ton of SF stories. Yeah. yeah. Well, the like whole, that, yeah, that, the that, whole, that like, keep right making there. paper clips. Yeah. yeah right, right there. That, right. that gap, right, it's like where the, the AI uh, takes it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Right. That, well, that, I mean, that that's, is, that is a trope at this point. That's a trope. Yep. Well, I mean, quick sidebar before it could be need to get to our picks of the week here, but I mean, essentially like all of Isaac Asimov's uh, three laws of robotics oriented stories are basically low key mystery stories where the idea behind it is no, the robot is not malfunctioning. Somehow it is still following the three laws, but it's particular interpretation of the three laws right. has resulted in this aberrant behavior. And so, you know, whether it's a matter of I'm going to protect all humans and satisfy law number one, 
um, by way of imprisoning all humans so that you can't screw up things for each other or, you know, whatever other kind of layer of things you want to look at there. It all sort of works on that idea of they have been given a set of instructions and they will fulfill them to their their utmost ability. But that set of instructions, again, black box time, it exists within a context. And that context mm-hmm. is not perceivable to them because absence of theory of mind. All yeah, right. Yeah. So we have time, to, I think, to do an express version of Picks of the Week anyway. <laughs> you want to so, do Picks? Yeah, I think we can, we, we can, we can fit that in real quick. Picks of the week. Patrick, um, let's let's yeah model good behavior. (laughs) I I have been enjoying. (laughs) I've been enjoying a lot of uh, comedy stuff, and one of the things that I have always wanted to watch, but I didn't even realize it was available to me. uh, It's currently on Prime. Is Travel Man. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is a show out of the UK. It stars, uh, I hope I get his name right. It's Richard Ayoade. Okay. This is this is Moss from the IT crowd. If you've ever seen the IT crowd, this okay. is Moss. And Moss is a nerd. Uh, he does not like to travel. Uh, he thinks that it's stupid. He thinks that other people who want to travel are wasting time. You could just stay home and have a much better time. So he's, he's trying to condense his travel into 48 hours. It's a weekend. It's a, it's a weekend trip. Uh, and when he gets wherever he's going, he wants to be as efficient as possible and run through things. And then he takes other uh, celebrities with him and they run around different cities and do different things. And uh, they try the local cuisine, which he almost always hates. <laughs> of course. It's not it's not what he wants. And and occasionally he will throw in gadgets because he used to also host a show called Gadget Man. And uh it, it they're just hilarious. So as an example, uh there was a there was a mini IT crowd reunion where he and uh uh O'Dowd, I think is his name, Chris O'Dowd, who uh played um Roy on the IT crowd, uh traveled together and uh I think it's to Copenhagen. And they are in a uh, the museum uh, where snow globes first originated from, and they're looking at snow globes, and and Roy, you know, he's holding the snow globe, and he he makes the joke of, "Oh, I'm going to drop it," <laughs> and then he actually drops it, and and Richard is just he's like the the whole reaction is like, I, you know what, I I can't I can't even think anymore. I don't know why. I don't know where we are. I don't know how we got here. I'm just happy that wasn't me. It's the funniest damn thing. So anyway, Travel Man, it's on Prime. Uh, there's multiple seasons of it. it. They're very quick, short episodes. There's like 30 minutes. You can get through a bunch. Of, and, and it's just him traveling with other people and and having fun. Uh, and it's been amusing. So that's, that's my pick this week, Travel Man. Awesome. How about you, Max? So me and my uh, a few of my friends have been doing a book club, um, and so we've been trying to go through like old sci-fi books we haven't read. So I'm embarrassed okay. to say I've never read this book, but the book I just finished was Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which oh, blew yeah. my mind. Like I, that was just <laughs> brilliant. Um, so I don't want to give anything away, but the the high level premise is thousands of years in the future. Um, there's this other planet humans are living on, and there's this dichotomy between two civilizations, one living on the moon, one living on the core planet. 
and the group living on the moon has developed an anarchist-based society. Um, and there's a physicist in this anarchist-based society that wants to go visit um, the more capitalist state-based society. Um, and there's a clash between them. And it's it's a sci-fi book, but uh, it's it's really like a exploration into human nature. Um, and I had never considered anarchy as a viable system for uh, organizing humans. And after reading this book, I have genuinely started pondering it. The, the key unlock is I've always considered anarchy as a relatively uncompassionate system for organizing humans. And she presents a, a very like uh, a, stru- a structure of civilization based on the notion of human solidarity, um, where we, we, we work well together just because we genuinely care. There's a culture of caring. Um, mm-hmm. and of course she talks about the challenges. They give up efficiency. This is, it goes back to a little bit of our discussion earlier, which is they accept the fact that they have less stuff, but they feel like it is worth it because they've gained something that about what it means to be human, um, by virtue of not having a state and not living within all these rules, et cetera. So yeah, highly recommend. Nice. Very cool. Um, so, and, and the idea of like the culture of compassion and solidarity, um, maybe it's just because like October has been kind of a crap month for me this particular year, but my daughter and I have been kind of binge watching, never having seen it before the great British baking show. I mean, there, I mean, there could probably be nothing less technologically sophisticated or AI oriented than a bunch of adorable British people in a tent outdoors, furiously. And I mean, in the sense of rapidity, not rage baking, uh, because like rage is absolutely not a thing in this show. It is just there are lots of different competitive, weird cooking theme shows in the United States that definitely Deirdre and I have watched together. But this one sort of stands out to us for its like sheer, absolute good heartedness. Um, it's it is the warm hug of shows on a on a cold, almost winter's night. So highly recommend if that's the kind of October you're having too. Um, but yeah, there we go. So this has been Gracie Townsend. You yes. have been chopped. Oh, well, in that case, you better do the outro. I've been chopped. No, I can't do it. You're doing it. It's on you. It's on you, Hester. I'm gone. Bye. Oh, you actually want me to do an outro? Fine. Max, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, why don't you tell me. people again the name of the book and where they can find you online? You said you don't have an account on the uh, uh, site formerly known as Twitter. But where can people find you if they want to check you out and where can they get your book? Yeah. So the book is uh, titled A Brief History of Intelligence, Evolution, AI, and the Five Breakthroughs That Made Our Brains. Um, You should be able to find the book anywhere where books are sold. Um, And uh, yes, I am not on Twitter, but you can find me uh, at abriefhistoryofintelligence.com. You can feel free to email me directly at maxbennett at Gmail. Um, And you can find me on LinkedIn, just Max Bennett. And do you not use social media because of all the algorithms and all the bullshit? Yeah, it just doesn't make, I don't feel fulfilled and happy using social media. So I don't see any reason I, to use it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I may, I, I, I intentionally said that that way. But uh, what I have found is that people who have a, who are in technology jobs and, and who understand these things better than like the average person tend to not want to be on social media, which I always find very, very interesting. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
So even though I even though I phrased the question that way, it, it, <laughs> it's a little I, leading. I, I get it. I get it. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I used to, I used to be a digital marketer, and I gave it up for Lent. And um, I like I understand how bad all of the loyalty programs can be. <laughs> so every time I go into a place and they're like, "Oh, what's your phone number? Why? <laughs> well, you know, for the loyalty program, no." <laughs> You, you don't want the loyalty program? No. Well, why not? Yeah, right. Because I don't want it. Put your phone number in right. there. Right. <laughs> right? Or, or they'll, say, they'll say, what's your phone number? And I'm like, oh, look, I'm, I'm very flattered, but you're not my type. <laughs> do you actually say that in stores? Is that it? I do say that, yes. Yep. Respect. I have said I that, that and I get, I get, yeah. the, I get, the, I yeah. get the red blush. So I totally get it. I was just teasing <laughs> you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, Tracy, you're no longer chopped if you want to say anything. Oh, that. good. Well, I was actually just sitting there writing mute for a bit because Gwen <laughs> is losing her frigging mind upstairs. It's probably just an Amazon delivery. My corporate overlords are delivering me something I could have bought elsewhere. Gah. Anyway, thanks so much for being on with us. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, this is 600. Hmm. Doesn't feel like a day over 540-ish, give or take. Let's see. Usual business. Thank you for listening. Special shout-out to our Patreon backers. They deal with far more shenanigans than you, if you're not a Patreon backer, could know. Like, (laughs) a lot, a lot. There's a whole secret Facebook essentially dedicated to shenanigans on an epic scale. Now, if that sounds interesting, like you're into shenanigans or extra monthly episodes no one else gets to hear, or even just hanging out with like-minded folks doing lots and lots of polls that are pointless, then you should check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash functional nerds. Also, you should check out Beyond the Trope. It's a podcast, I think. Pretty sure they talk about stuff and things. Catch it on Tuesdays, I think. And if you don't, I'll get get a note from Giles and Michelle. It'll be very politely written, asking me basically to do more of these bumpers to remind you to listen to them. And... When I say very politely, I mean very politely. They're seriously politely people, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. And lastly, Ren, can you reach up and give your dad a little shake on the shoulder just to make sure he isn't nodding off in the driver's seat? Thank you. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.